Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to start off this podcast is called Different Dads, and it's by X.J. Kennedy. This is from the poetry collection Poems for Fathers, uh, which was selected by Myra Cohn Livingston and illustrated by Robert Casilla. Now, X.J. Kennedy is an author of several books for poems for both adults and children, as well as several textbooks and anthologies. Uh, some of his collections of kids' poems include such titles as Ghastly's Goops and Pincushions, Drat These Brats, and Talking Like the Rain. Different Dads by X.J. Kennedy Training horses, riding fire trucks, some dads do that. Other dads mostly sit and scribble figures on computers or ruled pads. Fixing bikes, some fathers falter, even though for years they've tried. When they're done, your chain will dangle every time you start to ride. That's why when my bike has problems, I ask mom. Poor helpless dad can't twist wrenches or ply pliers. Otherwise, he's not half bad. Truth is, he's a whiz at adding. Once when I didn't dig my math, he explained it, writing numbers with the soap suds of my bath. Then there was the time my bedroom has a visitor, a bat. And what superhero trapped it gently in my baseball hat? Father, could you find one better? Maybe, but you'd travel far. Any fathers have their uses. Doesn't matter who they are. My guest today is Bonnie Becker, author of the Mouse and Bear picture books, such as A Christmas for Bear and A Visitor for Bear, as well as Cloud Country and the middle grade novels The Magical Ms. Plum and Holbrook, A Lizard's Tale. She also contributes to a, the blog Books Around the Table. You can find Bonnie's website at bonniebecker.com and at the blog she writes for at booksaroundthetable.wordpress.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Bonnie. Thanks. Great to be here. As I've mentioned, you've written several mouse and bear books. What can you tell the readers about that series? Well, it's a great coupling of two unlikely characters. There's a grumpy bear, who I have to admit is perhaps modeled a bit after my husband, and a very cheerful mouse, who who brings life into bear's very hermetic, lonely life. And it starts with a visitor for bear, where a mouse keeps popping up into bear's home, and bear keeps trying to get rid of him, and finally... He accepts them, and they become friends. And it's turned into a six-series book because it's so much fun to play with these characters. And the last one is A Christmas for Bear, but there's a library book for Bear, The Sniffles for Bear, A Birthday for Bear, and it's been great. Uh, like I've mentioned before, uh, you write both picture books and middle-grade novels. And What is the process for writing each of those, and, and how do they differ, too? They are really different. A picture book, you can get the whole arc of the story in your mind fairly readily. I mean, that, then you'll go and work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it. But it's, it's a shape that you can hold in your mind. And one of the reasons I got into it was I didn't have much time. I was super busy. I was a mom. I was working full-time out of the house. And it was something I could come back to and not have completely have to reorient myself every time. A middle grade, so much longer, so much more complicated you can't hold it all in your mind at one time. And, and you have to, have, for me anyway, it helps to have a much more sense of where I'm going for each sort of piece of it. 
you know, break it into beginning, middle, end, and pieces of that. Uh, my understanding is you don't illustrate your own picture books. Another person illustrates them. Is that right? That's right. There are author illustrators who get to do both, but somebody like me, uh, no. <laughs> so when you see your pictures for the first time, uh, because my understanding is you don't work with the illustrator directly, uh, what is that experience like? Is it a positive one or a negative one sometimes? It took me a while to get used to it. I have to admit, there were sometimes I was disappointed, but now almost always I love it because I'm thrilled with what they've done with my words. They've taken it someplace I didn't necessarily expect. And I've had a couple experiences where they just, Nelson Bear was one of them where they brought the characters to life in a way I, I just was ecstatic when I saw it. And the same thing happened with another one of my books called A Christmas Crocodile, which was illustrated by David Small who's a well-known children's illustrator. And again, the first time I saw the crocodile, it was just, he had nailed it. And they bring to life an environment that you've only hinted at with your words. And it's very nice that I don't have to create that environment. They're doing all that work. Can you talk a little bit about the blog you contribute to, uh, Books Around the Table? It's five writers, author, uh, many of them are illustrator, author illustrators, and because we're lazy, we set it up so we only have to do this once every five weeks. Uh, but actually, it's a great blog. And because there's so many illustrators, there's a lot of visual element to it, a lot of discussion of illustration and images. But we, all, we talk about anything and everything to do with writing. We all have a slightly different approach to things. But I really like it. it it's a way to sort of write an essay, to be forced to write an essay about every five weeks. Is there something you're currently working on that you can talk about? I have a new picture book coming out, which is very different from the Mouse and Bear books. It's from Candlewick, like the Mouse and Bear books were. Uh, but it's a macabre, rhyming, sort of tall tale of a kid who gets on a haunted bus. And that's coming out actually this summer, but will be obviously perfect for the fall and for Halloween. And I just completed a middle grade that I'm really excited about and. I can't tell you a whole lot about it, but it's, it's set in Africa, and it's with my agent right now, and involved a lot of research, which, which was really fun to get into. Do you have an anticipated time, or is it hard to say at this point? It's hard to say. I can't see it coming out sooner than a couple of years. My agent's got to look at it. He may want some changes. We'll get it to up to some editors. They may want some changes. To me, it's a sort of middle grade that that really begs for illustrations, which is the kind that I love to write, you know, the kind that I love to read as a kid. So that might, there might be a process there, one and a half to two years, depending on how all that unfolds. The book you chose as your favorite is the children's fantasy novel Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones, which is originally published in 1986 by Green Willow Books. Uh, what can you tell readers who are unfamiliar with it what it's about? It's a delightful book. It's a children's book that in some ways is actually a rom-com, a romantic comedy, because it sets up an unlikely situation that, however, ends up being bringing two sort of feisty characters together who play off of each other. The thing I love about it, though, is it, it plays with a lot of the tropes of fantasy. That's one thing I love about it, and I'd like to read a section of that that sort of helps set it up. But also, it, it has an unlikely thing happen to the main character, which is... She, an evil spell is cast upon her, and she becomes an old woman. And it's so much fun to watch Diane Wynne-Jones play with that. And it's so much fun to watch this relationship develop between the wizard Howell 
and the young woman who's been turned into an old woman. The woman you mentioned, uh, the main character, Sophie, starts off as someone who's resigned to her lot in life uh, as the elder sister of three. It's really only after she's magically transformed that she starts to carve a new path for herself. What did you think of Sophie's character arc and uh, what she discovers about herself? Yeah, I think a good way to set that up would be to read the, the opening of the book, in which Sophie talks to Hats is the first chapter. And I'll just read a, a small section. In the land of Inguri, where such things as suddenly boots and cloaks of invisibility really exist, it is quite a misfortune to be born the eldest of three. Everyone knows you're the one who will fail first, and worst, if the three of you set out to seek your fortunes. Sophie Hatter was the eldest of three sisters. She was not even the child of a poor woodcutter, which might have given her some chance of success. Her parents were well-to-do and kept the ladies' hat shop in the prosperous town of Market Chipping. True, her own mother died when Sophie was two years old and her sister Maddie was one year old, and her father married his youngest shop assistant, a pretty blonde girl called Fanny. Fanny shortly gave birth to the third sister, Martha. This ought to have made Sophie and Maddie into ugly sisters, but in fact all three girls grew up very pretty indeed, though Maddie was the one everyone said was most beautiful. Fanny treated all three girls with the same kindness and did not favor Martha in the least. Mr. Hatter was proud of his three daughters and sent them all to the best school in town. Sophie was the most studious. She read a great deal and very soon realized how little chance she had of an interesting future. It was a disappointment to her, but she was still happy enough looking after her sisters and grooming Martha to seek her fortune when the time came. Since Fanny was always busy in the shop, Sophie was the one who looked after the younger two. There was a certain amount of screaming and hair pulling between those younger two. Letty was by no means resigned to being the one who, next to Sophie, was bound to be the least successful. It's not fair, Letty would shout. Why should Martha have the best of it just because she was born the youngest? I shall marry a prince, so there. To which Martha always retorted that she would end up disgustingly rich without having to marry anybody. Then Sophie would have to drag them apart and mend their clothes. She was very deft with her needle. As time went on, she made clothes for her sisters, too. There was one deep red rose outfit she made for Letty the May day before the story really starts, which Fanny said looked as if it had come from the most expensive shop in Kingsbury. And that's sort of the setup and the introduction to the characters. But, like, in the beginning here, she is starting with your classic notion of what happens in a fairy tale land, which is that if you're the oldest, of course, you're going to be the one who fails. And does it wrong. And that is a notion that Sophie accepts. And in many ways kind of makes herself internally an old woman. You know, she becomes the caretaker. She has diminished uh, expectations for herself. She accepts being made to work in the hat shop while Fanny, the stepmother, sends the other two girls off to seek their fortune out in the wide world. When she's transformed into the old woman, in an odd way, that frees her up because she becomes externally sort of a little bit of what she feels like inside, but at the same time, it suddenly doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that she's the oldest of three sisters and perhaps consigned to the state. She can suddenly start to say and do whatever she wants. She has the wonderful freedom of old age, and that starts to get her on her journey. 
The other main character in the book, Howl, uh, when we first meet him, we're given the impression that he's a evil and ruthless wizard. But when we finally meet him, he turns out to be something entirely else. Uh, how would you describe Howl as a character and as a appeal to Sophie? Well, he's hilarious. He's vain. He's foppish. He's uh, spoiled. He's misleading. He's grouchy. And Sophie sees him that way, too. At first, she's prepared to see him as a terrible wizard, but she pretty quickly sees that he's really just sort of a spoiled brat. But, of course, you love him because he's, he's really underneath all of that, kind, loving, good, trying to do the right things, has a wonderful sense of humor, and appreciates those who are around him. You start to see that everybody around him actually likes him very much. Uh, and you start to realize he's not what he seems at all. In fact, nobody in uh, the book is what they seem to be. One of the big main themes of the book. Now, we do meet two other members of the castle, uh, Michael, who's an apprentice, and Calcifer, who's some kind of fire demon. If you want to talk a little bit about who these characters are and what they bring to the story. I think that, number one, they bring a lot of plot turns. You know, they, they drive the plot in a lot of ways especially Calcifer, who is sort of under a curse tied to a bargain he's made with Howell. And the key motivating force in the plot is Sophie trying to figure out what this bargain is, because if she can, and if she can free Calcifer, he will free her from the curse that's made her an old woman. But also they, they are signals, just as they are signals sort of about Howell not being what he seems. There are signals about Sophie not being what she seems. Howell's part of the reason Howell is willing to let her stay in his castle, which, by the way, is a castle that literally moves around the countryside on legs, is because Calcifer, she's done born, she's noticed and recognized that Calcifer is a fire demon, and Calcifer has accepted her, and he knows that's a good sign about her character. One of the things that about Sophie's transformation, another thing I loved about this book Sophie actually is indeed quite magical. She's probably the most magical of almost anybody in this story. She has deep powers. And some part of her has suspected that probably most of her life. But because convention has said she can't be the magical one, she has told herself she can't. And has sort of ignored all the ways in which she clearly is very magical. And that starts to come out in living with Hal and in interacting with Michael and Calcifer who see that in her, too. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about the castle itself, which is almost a character in its own right. Uh, what is it ab- about the castle that makes it such a strange and unusual and memorable place? It is. Well, again, like almost everything in the book, it's not what it seems to be. It looks like a big, looming building with turrets and uh, smokestacks puffing out smoke, big grinding black stones as it, as it walks around. But when you come inside it, it turns out the interior really is this cottage that actually exists on the seaside. And what's most magical about this castle is it has a doorway that has a wooden knob above it with colored dots on it. If you turn the dot around, if you turn the knob around and say a blue dot is at the bottom and you open the door, you'll be at the seaside town. And if you turn it to another color, you'll be above Market Chicken, which is where Sophie lives and where the castle is moving around. And if you turn it to another spot, you end up 
in a mysterious blankness, just sort of a black space that everybody's afraid to go into, but Hal disappears into fairly regularly. And one of the delights of the book is that that blank space, actually if you step into it about an inch, you end up in a very strange, very bizarre land known as Wales, which is where Howell really lives and where he's in a very ordinary family and, and home. But Diane Wynne-Jones, again, playing with the conventions and tropes of fantasy, turns this into a fantastical place, at least through Sophie's eyes. Uh, you know, she encounters these magic moving screens where characters talk and move about. And, of course, it's a TV and it's a, their computers. And so she plays a game with that kind of thing. As you mentioned a couple of times, in this story, no one ever seems to be who they really appear to be. Now, what did you make of this theme of deception that goes throughout the whole novel? I love it, and I think it's developed brilliantly. It's not preachy. It's not saying, look deeper, there, there's a truth behind the facade, but, but it is, in that everything she shows you are people not being who we think they are, even who they think they should be. It's all over the place. But underlying that is an even more interesting message, which is the people that who love these people actually do see them for who they are. But uh, Sophie's two younger sisters, uh, Martha and Letty, trade places and through a little spell that Letty puts on them are able to look like each other instead of themselves. But the people that they actually get to know and who get to care about them aren't fooled. They sense the real person underneath. And that same is true between Howell and Sophie. Not only can ha- does Howell actually know right away that Sophie's under a spell and is not really an old woman because of his magical powers, as he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him, you can see they're realizing who they really are. So I love that. I think virtually everything in the book, from a, a magical scarecrow to a dog, to a skull that's in, in Howl's Castle. They're not, none of them are what they seem to be. One of the things that appealed to me about this novel is the way the author introduces uh, the most fantastic things, uh, like Howl getting covered with green slime when he's upset, without really too much explanation for why this is happening. She really trusts the reader to expect that these are the kinds of things that happen in this very strange world. Uh, what did you think about the way she builds up this world? I thought it was just right, and it's a trick I've learned in some of the, you know, sort of far-fetched stories that I tell. You just plunge in. You, it just is so. And you can especially get away with that if your tone is just right. And she establishes a kind of ironic, slightly distant tone right from the beginning that's going to let her say sort of absurd or preposterous things. And you're just going to accept it because that tone is just saying, well, that's just the way it is. She's the oldest of three, so of course she's destined to be the failure. She has Sophie talking to her hats. Suddenly, the reader sees that what Sophie says to the hats that Sophie is making, because she's a hat maker, imbue the hats with qualities that then affect the clients who buy the hats and wear them. And it just is. I think it's a little bit different than science fiction, where you, you have to usually explain a little more why the world works the way it does. And... She instantly sets up a world where it just is. It's a magical world. Uh, but then she is consistent within that magic. That's the other really key thing, I think, that makes doing that work. You have to have rules that you understand about the magic that you've set up, and you have to follow them. 
and then the reader feels secure. You know, I don't know exactly why a man was turned into a dog or how, but it's going to take certain things to undo the spell, and he's going to act certain ways. So between those two things, just plunge in, just say it, and then be consistent about it. Uh, there are a lot of uh, different magical objects and spells mentioned in this book. Uh, one of my favorite is the Seven League Boots, uh, which sounds like a good idea, though I don't think I could really take the disorientation. I'm wondering, was there a magical power represented in this book that you thought would be great if you could have it, even if just for a little bit? Absolutely. I, I loved Sophie's uh, habit of talking to inanimate things. And then her ability to to imbue them with qualities by what she said to them. I mean, number one, it just was fun to me as a character trait that she did that because I have a feeling a lot lot of us do that, actually. We find ourselves talking to our hairbrush or our mirror or whatever. But also how unconsciously she was setting up traits in them. I just think it'd be very fun to talk to something and animate it. Now, I know you had a chance to share uh, part of the book from the beginning. Are there any other passages from the book that you would like to share as well? This is a section where Sophie and Michael, Michael is trying to uh, figure out a magic spell that Howell has left him. And part of the magic spell is that he needs to catch a falling star. So here are Sophie and Michael trying to do that. One of the reasons I like this passage is it shows Diana Wynne-Jones' ability with lyrical writing. She generally writes fairly straightforward and and has a fun, ironic tone. It's vivid, but it's pretty simple. But here she gets into a little lyricism. The marshes smelled of salt and earth. The sea glittered and softly swished to the rear. Sophie could feel more than see the miles and miles of flatness stretching away in front of them. What she could see were bands of low bluish mist and pale glimmers of marshy pools over and over again until they built into a pale line where the sky started. The sky was everywhere else, huger still. The Milky Way looked like a band of mist risen from the marshes and the keen stars twinkled through it. Thank you for reading that, and thank you as well for choosing uh, this book. As I, I mentioned before we started this interview, um, Howl's Moving Castle is one of those books on my list of books I mean to read but have never quite gotten around to, so this really gave me a chance to finally read the book, and I'm glad I did. Uh, so thank you, thank you again for choosing it and for talking with me today about it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You can find Bonnie's website at bonniebecker.com and the blog she writes for at booksaroundthetable.wordpress.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.